we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 3 this morning, and uh, if you've been around Capshaw very long, you know that our custom here is to open up the Scriptures and, and work through uh, uh, the book of the Bible section by section, sometimes verse by verse, and expository preaching. Uh, we do that for a couple of reasons, both a conviction, we see that this is the best way that we believe to actually uh, to understand what God is saying to us and to put it to practice. We also do it uh, by way of example. We see that Jesus and the apostles, it was their custom to open up the scriptures, to read the text, and to explain it. So that's our pattern. But there are times, certain times in the life of a church or even the life of a country uh, where current events warrant a break from our regular rhythm. So we've been looking at John, the Gospel of John, again, going through that uh, over the last year plus. But this morning, we're going to take a break from that. And what I want to do is I want to make sure that we're talking about what everyone else is talking about, only we're able to do that from a decidedly gospel-saturated uh, perspective. And so we're going to do that from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 1 through 15 in the sermon that I'm calling A Time for Everything, a gospel-shaped response to COVID-19. And what I hope to do is provide uh, some thoughts on how a Christian might respond to everything that we see going on in our world. And of course, I believe anytime you open the Scriptures and you proclaim the Scriptures, we need also to see hope, a reason for hope, and we'll find that as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, let me begin by reading verses 1 through 8. The Word of the Lord reads this way, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to, to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Now, of all the sections in Ecclesiastes, this is by far, I think, the, the best known. It was a song, as many of you recall, made famous by the birds in 1965. And maybe even as I was reading that passage, you were singing the lyrics uh, in your head. It was, it was part of a movie, a Forrest Gump. It was uh, remade a few years ago. Uh, as a song by Pastor Chris's all-time favorite band, uh, Wilson Phillips. Um, actually, more than 15 artists have recorded this song, so I'm sure you may remember this song, even if you're young, you remember someone uh, covering it. Um, it's a well-known section, but it's also, I would say, a very misunderstood part of Scripture. The most common mistake we make is when we view this passage as a command by God for us to make sure that the timing of what we're doing is right. It's misunderstood when we look at this and we say, okay, what God is saying to us is we got to make sure that the timing is right on all of our actions or behaviors. Old Testament scholar uh, Chiun uh, Siao says, the poem is popularly understood to mean that there are appropriate moments for people to act. And at the proper moment, even an ordinarily objectionable situation can be beautiful in its own way. Now, sure, there's some truth to that, but that's not what this section is about. For sure, there are appropriate times for us to act in certain ways, and there are inappropriate times for us to respond. 
a right, a right time for us to mourn, and on the flip side, a right time for us to dance and to celebrate. There's a right time to embrace and a right time to refrain from embracing, like when the coronavirus hits your town. You probably don't want to, for example, laugh if someone tells you they're dying. That's inappropriate. You probably don't want to mourn if your best friend tells you that she just got engaged. It's not a best practice to plant in the middle of winter. I just read yesterday that police officers in Los Angeles had to inform people to uh, demand that people stop calling 911 just because someone had cut in front of them in the line to get toilet paper. This is an inappropriate time to use that mechanism. So certainly there are right times to do things and wrong times to do things, but that's not what Solomon is talking about here. Solomon is not saying, again, we should carefully consider the, thing, the timing of the things that we do, although we should do that. What he's saying, though, is these are all this list of things, these are all things that God brings about. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to dance, a time to mourn, a time to celebrate. These are all occasions that God brings about by His sovereign design. In other words, Ecclesiastes 3 is not a list of things that happen in life, and a guide for us to make wise decisions. This is a list of things that God, in His wisdom, sovereignly orchestrates. Here's what this passage is saying. Despite the unpredictability of this broken world and the disappointment that goes along with living in it, God is sovereign over all and governs every action and reaction by His providential grace. See, even though human beings are presented in this passage that I just read as the ones who are doing the acting, it's understood by Solomon, the wisest man to ever live, and of course, inspired by the Holy Spirit, recognize that, that human beings are not ultimately in charge or in control of those things. God is. God is the one who is sovereign. God is the one behind these things. God alone is the one who makes some things grow and other things die. God alone is the one who brings some things to fruition and causes some things to fall by the wayside. Sometimes God brings us times of laughter, and we praise God for that. At other times, God brings us times of sorrow. It's part of His sovereign design. Sometimes God ushers into our lives a time to cast away stones, as it were. And at other times, He calls us to gather stones, which is just a Hebrew idiom that refers to getting ready for battle. Sometimes God causes us to keep silent. And at other times, He moves us to speak. Sometimes God brings about great health and prosperity to a nation or people. And sometimes, God in His wisdom and in His sovereignty permits a virus to spread throughout the world that He has made. But all of these things are from God. Now, this point is clearly laid out in the next section. Notice the number of times in his commentary on this poem that Solomon emphasizes what, quote, God has done. Look at verses 9 through 15. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, 
also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that, look at this phrase again, whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Now these two paragraphs that I just read serve again as a commentary on this very famous section that everyone knows and many people sing. Solomon is saying all those things that I just mentioned, that long list of things that I just mentioned, these are all things that God does. I love the way the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon commented on this. He said, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. That the fall of the leaves from the poplar tree is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. And then he says, The sovereignty of God is a soft pillow on which weary people lay their heads. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about this biblical reality, this theological notion that everything that ever happens from the smallest to the greatest is all designed by God, ordained by God for a very specific end. And that is to bring glory to His name and good to His people. So there's nothing that happens, Jesus would say in Matthew 10, not even the falling of a bird to the ground that happens apart from the Father's will. There's nothing that happens outside of God's eternal plan. From the tornadoes that sweep through the Midwest to the job change that maybe you went through to the virus that plagues our world. Ephesians 1 tells us God works out everything, everything in conformity with the purpose of His will. Now look at verse 14 again. This is so good. Solomon says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear Him. The phrase, whatever God does, in verse 14 is a reference back to verse 1 and the phrase, everything that happens. Whatever God does is everything that happens. Or we can sort of flip that phrase around and say everything that happens is whatever God does. In other words, it's a poetic way to talk about God's decorative will, His sovereignty. And when verse 14 says God does these things so that people fear Him, this is not... This is not a negative thing. This is not God trying to frighten people into submission, trying to scare people to death. Solomon says in another book that the fear of God is actually the beginning of wisdom. To fear God is not simply to, to throw up our hands and say, look, what God has determined uh, will be, so why bother? Nor is it giving up trying to find meaning in life or pursuing God, but recognizing what, what philosophers call the utter otherness of God. He is so different from us. He is unlike us. Yes, we are made in His image, but He is so beyond us, beyond our figuring out. To fear God is to recognize that He is majestic, powerful, and the only solid foundation for time and eternity. To fear God is to believe that He is still in control when everything around us seems to indicate otherwise. So armed with this knowledge, how does the Christian respond to coronavirus or really any outbreak or tragedy of this magnitude. Let me give you six considerations. Here's the first one. We recognize that this trial is nothing new to history or to God. I have a friend who's a, a world-class historian, and he travels around to Europe and Asia, and he speaks at these big conferences. He's got all the academic credentials, and he sometimes annoys me by reminding me that everything that happens in the world is cyclical. 
In other words, we're not seeing anything new that we've never seen before. The persecution of Christians, we've been watching that take place for 2,000 years. Rampant sexual promiscuity, no different than the Greco-Roman world even before Jesus came. Stock market crashes, of course we've seen that. Political animosity, this is nothing new. Health crises, yeah, we've experienced those as well. Solomon says in verse 15 that I just read, that which is already has been and that which is to be already has been. In other words, it's what Solomon has said elsewhere in his writings. There's nothing new under the sun. What can we encounter that has never been encountered before? In 1948, C.S. Lewis, the author of Chronicles of Narnia, among other works, wrote an essay entitled On Living in an Atomic Age. As the Second World War ended, there was a new, that, new era that was kind of ushered in. It was an era known as the Atomic Age. The first atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima in 1945, which ended World War II and created, a, a, at least in earnest, and created a very nervous age. People were worried. People were scared. Well, as C.S. Lewis began to answer the question, he, he asked the question, how should we live in an atomic age? He answered in the essay that I referenced on living in an atomic age. And, but what he had to say really applied so beautifully today. So with a nod to Matt Smethurst who suggested reading it this way, I've replaced the words atomic bomb with coronavirus. And I think it gives us some perspective. Here's what C.S. Lewis writes. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the coronavirus. How are we to live in the COVID-19 age? I'm tempted to reply, why, as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year, or as you would have lived in the Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night, or indeed, as you have already, you are already living in the age of cancer, the age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway incidents, an age of motor accidents. And here's what he says, which is, I think is so helpful. In other words... Do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. What he's saying is, look, there's, there's nothing new. Now, of course, I understand this is a new strain of a virus, and, and, and it's even prompted a sort of unprecedented responses. But the reality is the experience of the spread of a deadly disease is nothing novel in history. And I think there's some comfort in realizing that. Fear is fueled by the feeling of being alone. This idea that no one has ever suffered what we've suffered. No one knows what it's go, like to go through what we've gone through. That's really, that really causes fear to flourish. But there's comfort in knowing on a human level that others have been through this, and here we are in the, on the other side of it. Of course, there's even, even greater comfort in knowing that there's nothing new to God. In fact, this is all part of His sovereign design. From before the world was made, we would do well to remember that God is not surprised by any of this. In fact, this is very old news to Him, and He knows how it will turn out because all of it is according to His infinitely wise plan. So what's next? What's, how else can we respond? Here's the second way. We ask God to teach us more about Himself and ourselves. There is a recurring theme in the book of Ecclesiastes, and that is, how do we make sense of our own plight? How do we make sense of our own struggles in this world? And then, of course, Solomon would go on to conclude that if there is no God, then all of this is meaningless. So the point being, we need to understand who this God is, who He has made us to be, and respond accordingly. Well, 
What's the first thing we ask when tragedy strikes? Of course, it's the question, why? Why, God? Why me? Why now? Why is all this happening to me? And I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily with asking that question. Of course, it would be wrong for us to dwell there indefinitely, but there's nothing wrong with asking that question. But I think a better question is, who? In other words, God, who are you revealing yourself to be in this? Who are you showing me that you are? And who are you revealing to me that I am in relation to you? Because here's the thing about suffering. God almost never gives us the macro reasons. He doesn't give us, or the micro reasons, rather. He doesn't tell us specifically why things are happening. But he does give us the macro reasons. In other words, he tells us that he's working out all things for the good of those who love him, for those who have been called according to his purpose. We know that God loves his children unconditionally. We are, as we just sang together, a delight to him. We know that he will not allow anything or anyone to come between us, as it were, to become more important to us than he is, not our self-reliance, not our human ingenuity, not even our health. And suffering is one of the ways that God actually keeps us close to himself by helping us to see how sufficient he truly is how satisfying he is. Now, please hear me on this. I'm not saying that the coronavirus is God's punishment for some particular sin or, or the, the, the acts of certain people. I'm not going all Jerry Falwell on you at the moment. Disease happens in a sin-cursed world. It just happens because our world is broken. It's inevitable. And somehow, though, in a way known only to God, he has ordained these events as a way to strengthen the faith of his children, to increase our dependence and indeed our joy on Him, in Him, and even, I would say, to remove the idols from our hearts, idols that so quickly take throne in my own heart, the idol of comfort, the idol of safety, the idols of health and security. So we ask God, help us to see who you truly are, Reveal yourself. Show us your goodness. Give us the ability to rest in your kindness and your love for us. Now, what's next? Here's a third consideration. We use this opportunity to broaden our prayer focus. How easy is it to get caught up in praying for our own specific needs? I, do the, I use a prayer app. I use a very specific list, as those who around me know I like to do. I go through the list, and yet I still find myself on a regular basis saying to myself, I've just finished praying, and it's been all for myself. My wisdom, leadership, direction, whatever it is. And of course, we pray for those things, but this is an opportunity for us to broaden our prayer focus. There's a question that, that I ask around here when we talk about prayer, and it's this. If your prayers were answered, would anything change in the world? Would anything be different in the world? We pray for our own needs, but here we have an opportunity. Really, we're sparked and prompted to pray for those we don't even know. We pray for the authorities in other countries governing their territories. We ask that God would give them wisdom. We pray for medical professionals treating the sick, that God would spare them from the disease, give them wisdom. We pray for scientists as they look for a cure. We pray for those who have been infected, even if we don't know their names. We pray for people who are afraid at this very moment to leave their homes. We pray for those who are at high risk of these, this and other illnesses. We pray for the Lord that He would, we pray to the Lord that He would protect us and keep us 
We pray that he might show us his mercy. We pray for the Lord Jesus to return, that he might come back and take us to this new place that he has prepared for us, a place that we've been looking at and talking about in John's gospel, that he might take us there. We might enjoy that that complete shalom, that complete well-being that he talks about, a place where there won't be any sin or any viruses. Now, here's the fourth way we can respond. We search for creative ways to serve others. As he reflects on God's sovereignty, Solomon says in verse 12, I perceive there's nothing better to do than to be joyful in what? And to do good as long as we live. Well, who is the doing good for? It's for our neighbor. As Martin Luther so famously said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. So we look at ways that we can creatively serve others. The natural inclination during such a scare like COVID-19 is, of course, to turn inward. And I would say there's probably no stronger instinct to fall in humanity than that of self-preservation. We're good at looking out for ourselves. Well, what better way to stand out to a watching world, what better way to serve a watching world than to show our kindness and compassion and generosity by our sacrifice? Have you seen what's happening out there? People are snatching up all the essential supplies. Do you think they're doing it for their community? Do you think they have in mind their neighbor? I don't think so. As my friend Chad Bird wrote yesterday, other people are not fellow humans to be loved, but competitive consumers to be overspent or, if need be, shoved out of the way on the way to the altar of the checkout line. This is what happens when fear reigns. This is what happens when God's sovereignty is ignored. But we know that God is in control. We know that He's good. And we know that we can serve others without fearing what's next. Now certainly we're called to live wisely, and I'm certainly not advising you not to take advantage of of stores and provide for your own family. Of course not. But we ought to be looking for, considering ways to to creatively serve our neighbor. And I guess that looks different for each one of us. I've heard of folks offering free child care for working moms, which I think is a beautiful thing. I've heard of folks uh, providing free pharmaceuticals or free uh, materials, whatever it is, or just sitting with someone who is scared. Here's our fifth consideration. We look for stories of God's redeeming work through this trial. There's a great turn of phrase that I love that Solomon uses in verse 11. He says about God, He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now, the the word, that Hebrew word translated beautiful is a word that's used a lot of different ways in the Old Testament, but usually predominantly in one way. It's a reference to uh, something that is aesthetically pleasing. It could be a beautiful building or a beautiful design, or it's actually kind of odd that we see the number of times that, that the Bible talks about a beautiful person. It's sometimes used to describe someone who's just physically or aesthetically pleasing. Like in Job 42, uh, this word is used to describe Job's daughters. In all the land, the text reads, there were no women as beautiful as Job's daughters. So sometimes the word beautiful is used, again, to describe something that is pleasing to the eye. But the word beautiful is also used to convey something different, something that is good something that has a profitable end. In other words, something that has been redeemed, something that has been restored, 
something that has been made glorious again. When Solomon says about God in verse 11, he's made everything beautiful in its time, he's talking about God's work of redeeming that which seemed hopeless and that which seemed broken, which means that every laugh, every trial, every tear, every hurt, every joy, every victory, and yes, every virus, these are all things ordained by God to bring about a beautiful, redemptive end. To bring about an end that is pleasing and good from the perspective of the all-wise God. And so I think we ought to look for those stories of redemption. We look for ways that God is actually strengthening the faith of those who are spiritually weak. We look at the ways that God is actually increasing the joy that people have in Him. We look at the ways that God is taking people who maybe would be self-centered and self-preserving and causing them to move out of their comfort zone and to serve someone else. These are stories of redemption that I think we should look for. Now, here's the final consideration. We trust in God's timing and purposes. He has proven Himself faithful. The whole point of this passage, and again in Ecclesiastes, is that God brings about Everything that happens at the perfect time, for everything there is a season and, and a time for every matter under the sun. This is how this section starts out. And so I think there's, there's plenty of reason there to be confident, of course, in God's design. We've already said it, we discussed it, despite the unpredictability of this broken world and the disappointment that goes along with living in it, God is sovereign over all and governs every action and reaction by His providential grace. Well, of all of God's sovereign plans, of all that fits within God's sovereign design, the most scandalous, the most encouraging, the most awe-inspiring was God's plan to send His Son for a hopeless and rebellious people. Speaking of God's incredible plan of salvation centered on this sending act of God, the Apostle Peter writes, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, again, a reference to His sovereignty, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Even the death of Jesus was part of God's sovereign plan. Now, maybe you're asking the question, I don't know, I'm, I'm still not persuaded. How can I know that I can trust God? I read about what's going on in Italy, and I know someone who's actually close to our family who has the coronavirus, and I see that everything is shut down and schools are closing and sports leagues are canceling. How can I really know that I can trust God? Because I don't know if I'm there yet. Well, the greatest example of God's unwavering goodness and His amazing love is the cross of Jesus Christ where His love and justice and trustworthiness took center stage. Sometimes people ask, why did Jesus have to die? Couldn't God have come up with a different way? And I've asked that question myself many times. But the answer becomes clear when we consider the character of God. We know in our hearts that it's not loving, of course, to ignore a terrible crime. If a judge set free a convicted murderer and just said, you know what, I don't have time to deal with that, we would be scandalized by that. We would be offended by that. If the judge said concerning a convicted rapist, you know what, I don't want to deal with this. Just go, you're free. We would be furious, and I think and rightfully so. 
It's neither loving nor fair to ignore a terrible crime. Well, how then should a fair and holy God deal with a people who have revolted against Him, the very God who made them? Of course, I'm talking about myself, talking about you and me, every person ever, ever born. From birth, we have rejected God. The book of Romans tells us in so many places that, that we are at odds with God. There's no one who pursues God. There's no one who longs after God. There's no one who wants to obey Him. By nature, we hate and I use that word intentionally, we hate God's authority over us. The so-called greatest commandment hangs over us like a sledgehammer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And we read that and we say, surely I have failed to do so. Well, what should God do in light of our failure? How should a loving and holy and just God respond to our rebellion? The only fair thing to do is to punish our sin. Sin must be paid for. It must be dealt with. To tolerate evil is to deny justice. And God actually does unleash His, fuel, His full fury, but He pours it out on Jesus instead of us. What God sovereignly determined to do was put on Jesus our sin, though Jesus Himself never sinned. On the cross, God's Son took the punishment that we deserved. On the cross, God gave Jesus our record of wrong. And by faith, we receive Jesus' record of righteousness. I read a great article recently in which the author wrote this. The cross demonstrates God's character in all its complexity. It shows His love, kindness, and mercy united with His justice, holiness, and wrath. It perfectly demonstrates a God who surpasses understanding. The Lord is giving us a glimpse into the immensity of His love for us. The love of God is not a tolerant love. It is much better. It is a redemptive love. In other words, what God did, because He is loving and just, is rather than ignore our sins, which He can't do anyway, His character won't allow it, is He actually provided a way for them to be dealt with a way for us to be forgiven by sending His one and only Son. The cross is the greatest evidence that God loves us and He can be trusted. The Apostle Paul says it this way, What then shall we say to the, these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Now I want to I want to take that, and I'll do it with some trepidation, but I want to, I want to revise that slightly in the spirit of the C.S. Lewis quote. And I want, to, I want to reinterpret that and read it this way. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, can a virus destroy us? Can a disease separate us from His sovereign, loving plan? Can a pandemic do anything to us that God has not already decreed for our good and His glory? Absolutely not. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who knows? Maybe the virus hits my family. Maybe it hits your family. But you can rest assured in this. It's not something that will surprise God. 
It's not something that will take him uh, aback. It's not something that will uh, destroy you. God has promised to give us all things in Christ. Peace of conscience, fellowship with God Himself, joy in trial, strength in weakness. Yes, we will suffer, but these things are promised to us by God. The forgiveness of sins, the removal of guilt. When we fail to love our neighbor, we are forgiven in Christ. When we attack the one who secured the last container of hand sanitizer, or maybe we just do it in our hearts. Maybe we look at hatred or or we despise that person. Our sins are forgiven in Christ. When we mock those who are making such a huge deal about this outbreak, or when we live in secret fear that we might be the next victim, our sins are forgiven if we are in Christ. Take heart this morning. Your sins are forgiven if you are in Jesus. And the same God who saw to it that your sins could be forgiven in Christ is looking out for you even now, and He can be trusted because His love is faithful. So yes, please, wash your hands. Use your sleeve when you cough. But know this, God's timing and His purposes can be trusted. And He has sovereignly appointed a time for every event. And even now, God will bring beauty out of this chaos. Let's pray. Father in heaven, continue to minister to us, we pray, and give us the grace to believe what we have read and discussed this morning. Father, we thank you that even though a pandemic may spread, we can worship you with joy and confidence, not because we've washed our hands enough, but because you are a faithful and true and loving God. And even if we get the virus, and even should the virus claim our very lives, we know you have something better in store for us, that you have prepared for us, that you have planned for us before there even was an us. And Father, we praise you with that confidence in Christ this morning. Pour out your mercy and your grace on us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.